Chapter Seven of the House of a Thousand Candles by Meredith Nicholson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Man on the Wall. I was so thoroughly angry with myself that after idling along the shores for an hour, I lost my way in the dark wood when I landed, and brought up at the rear door used by Bates for communication with the villagers who supplied us with provender. I readily found my way to the kitchen and to a flight of stairs beyond which connected the first and second floors. The house was dark, and my good spirits were not increased as I stumbled up the unfamiliar way in the dark with, I fear, a malediction upon my grandfather, who had built and left incomplete a house so utterly preposterous. My unpardonable fling at the girl still rankled, and I was cold from the quick descent of the night chill on the water and anxious to get into more comfortable clothes. Once on the second floor, I felt that I knew the way to my room, and I was feeling my way toward it over the rough floor, when I heard low voices rising, apparently, from my sitting-room. It was pitch dark in the hall. I stopped short and listened. The door of my room was open, and a faint light flashed once into the hall, and disappeared. I heard now a sound as of a hammer tapping upon woodwork. Then it ceased, and a voice whispered, "'You kill me if he finds me here. I'll try again to-morrow. I swear to God I'll help you, but no more now.' then the sound of a scuffle, and again the tapping of the hammer. After several minutes more of this, there was a whispered dialogue which I could not hear. Whatever was occurring, two or three points struck me on the instant. One of the conspirators was an unwilling party to an act as yet unknown. Second, they had been unsuccessful, and must wait for another opportunity. And third, the business, whatever it was, was clearly of some importance to myself, as my own apartments in my grandfather's strange house had been chosen for the investigation. Clearly I was not prepared to close the incident, but the idea of frightening my visitors appealed to my sense of humor. I tiptoed to the front stairway, ran lightly down, found the front door, and from the inside opened and slammed it. I heard instantly a hurried scamper above, and the heavy fall of one who had stumbled in the dark. I grinned with real pleasure at the sound of this mishap hurried into the great library, which was as dark as a well, and, opening one of the long windows, stepped out on the balcony. At once from the rear of the house came the sound of a stealthy step, which increased to a run at the ravine bridge. I listened to the flight of the fugitive through the wood until the sounds died away toward the lake. Then, turning to the library windows, I saw Bates, with a candle held above his head, peering about. "'Hello, Bates,' I called cheerfully. I just got home and stepped out to see if the moon had risen. I don't believe I know where to look for it in this country. He began lighting the tapers with his usual deliberation. It's a trifle early, I think, sir. About seven o'clock, I should say, was the hour, Mr. Glenarm. There was, of course, no doubt whatever that Bates had been one of the men I heard in my room. It was wholly possible that he had been compelled to assist in some lawless act against his will— but why, if he had been forced into aiding a criminal, should he not invoke my own aid to protect himself? I kicked the logs in the fireplace impatiently in my uncertainty. The man slowly lighted the many candles in the great apartment. He was certainly a deep one, and his case grew more puzzling as I studied it in relation to the rifle shot of the night before, his collision with Morgan in the wood which I had witnessed, and now the house itself had been invaded by someone with his connivance. The shot through the refectory window might have been innocent enough, but these other matters in connection with it could hardly be brushed aside. Bates lighted me to the stairway, and said as I passed him, "'There's a baked ham for dinner. 
I should call it extra delicate, Mr. Glenarm. I suppose there's no change in the dinner hour, sir? Certainly not, I said with asperity, for I'm not a person to inaugurate a dinner hour one day and change it the next. Bates wished to make conversation, the sure sign of a guilty conscience in a servant, and I was not disposed to encourage him. I closed the doors carefully, and began a thorough examination of both the sitting-room and the little bedchamber. I was quite sure that my own effects could not have attracted the two men who had taken advantage of my absence to visit my quarters. Bates had helped unpack my trunk, and undoubtedly knew every item of my simple wardrobe. I threw open the doors of the three closets in the rooms, and found them all in the good order established by Bates. He had carried my trunks and bags to a storeroom, so that everything I owned must have passed under his eye. My money, even, the remnant of my fortune that I had drawn from the New York bank, I had placed carelessly enough in the drawer of a chiffonier otherwise piled with collars. It took but a moment to satisfy myself that this had not been touched, and to be sure, a hammer was not necessary to open a drawer that had, from its appearance, never been locked. The game was deeper than I had imagined. I had scratched the crust without result, and my wits were busy with speculations as I changed my clothes, pausing frequently to examine the furniture, even the bricks on the hearth. One thing only I found, the slight scar of a hammerhead on the oak panelling that ran around the bedroom. The wood had been struck near the base and at the top of every panel, for though the mark was not perceptible on all, a test had evidently been made systematically. With this as a beginning, I found a moment later a spot of tallow under a heavy table in one corner. Evidently, the furniture had been moved to permit of the closest scrutiny of the panelling. Even behind the bed I found the same impress of the hammerhead. The test had undoubtedly been thorough, for a pretty smart tap on oak is necessary to leave an impression. My visitors had undoubtedly been making soundings in search of a recess of some kind in the wall, and as they failed of their purpose they were likely, I assumed, to pursue their researches further. I pondered these things with a thoroughly awakened interest in life, Glenarm House really promised to prove exciting. I took from a drawer a small revolver, filled its chambers with cartridges, and thrust it into my hip pocket, whistling, meanwhile, Larry Donovan's favorite air, The Marche Funebre d'une Marionette. My heart went out to Larry as I scented adventure, and I wished him with me, but speculations as to Larry's whereabouts were always profitless, and quite likely he was in jail somewhere. The ham of whose excellence Bates had hinted was no disappointment. There is, I've always held, nothing better in this world than a baked ham, and the specimen Bates placed before me was a delight to the eye, so adorned was it with spices, so crisply brown its outer coat, and a taste, that first tentative taste before the sauce was added, was like a dream of Lucullus come true. I could forgive a good deal in a cook with that touch, anything short of arson and assassination. Bates, I said as he stood forth where I could see him, you cook amazingly well. Where did you learn the business? Your grandfather grew very captious, Mr. Glenarm. I had to learn to satisfy him, and I believe I did it, sir, if you'll pardon the conceit. He didn't die of gout, did he? I can readily imagine it. No, Mr. Glenarm, it was his heart. He had his warning of it. Ah, yes, to be sure. The heart or the stomach. One may as well fail as the other. I believe I prefer to keep my digestion going as long as possible. Those real sweet potatoes again, if you please, Bates. The game that he and I were playing appealed to me strongly. It was altogether worth while. 
and as I ate guava jelly with cheese and toasted crackers, and then lighted one of my own cigars over a cup of Bates' unfailing coffee, my spirit was livelier than at any time since a certain evening on which Larry and I had escaped from Tangier with our lives and the curses of the police. It is a melancholy commentary on life that contentment comes more easily through the stomach than along any other avenue. In the great library, with its rich store of books and its eternal candles, I sprawled upon a divan before the fire, and smoked and indulged in pleasant speculations. The day had offered much material for fireside reflection, and I reviewed its history calmly. There was, however, one incident that I found unpleasant in the retrospect. I had been guilty of most unchivalrous conduct toward one of the girls of St. Agatha's. It had certainly been unbecoming in me to sit on the wall, however unwillingly, and listen to the words, few though they were, that passed between her and the chaplain. I forgot the shot through the window. I forgot Bates and the interest my room possessed for him and his unknown accomplice. But the sudden distrust and contempt I had awakened in the girl by my clownish behavior annoyed me increasingly. I rose presently, found my cap in a closet under the stairs, and went out into the moon-flooded wood toward the lake. The tangle was not so great when you knew the way, and there was indeed, as I had found, the faint suggestion of a path. The moon glorified a broad highway across the water. The air was sharp and still. The houses in the summer colony were vaguely defined, but the sight of them gave me no cheer. The tilt of her tam-o'-shanter as she paddled away into the sunset had conveyed an impression of spirit and dignity that I could not adjust to any imaginable expiation. These reflections carried me to the borders of St. Agatha's, and I followed the wall to the gate, climbed up, and sat down in the shadow of the pillar farthest from the lake. Lights shone scatteringly in the buildings of St. Agatha's, but the place was wholly silent. I drew out a cigarette and was about to light it, when I heard a sound as of a tread on stone. There was, I knew, no stone pavement at hand, but peering toward the lake, I saw a man walking boldly along the top of the wall toward me. The moonlight threw his figure into clear relief. Several times he paused, bent down and rapped upon the wall with an object he carried in his hand. Only a few hours before I had heard a similar sound rising from the wainscoting of my own room in Glenarm House. Evidently the stone wall, too, was under suspicion. Tap, tap, tap! The man with the hammer was examining the farther side of my gate, and very likely he would carry his investigations beyond it. I drew up my legs and crouched in the shadow of the pillar, revolver in hand, I was not anxious for an encounter. I much preferred to wait for a disclosure of the purpose that lay behind this mysterious tapping upon my walls on my grandfather's estate. But the matter was taken out of my own hands before I had a chance to debate it. The man dropped to the ground, sounded the stone base under the gate, likewise the pillars, evidently without results, struck a spiteful crack upon the iron bars, then stood up abruptly and looked me straight in the eyes. It was Morgan, the caretaker of the summer colony. "'Good evening, Mr. Morgan,' I said, settling the revolver into my hand. There was no doubt about his surprise. He fell back, staring at me hard, and instinctively drawing the hammer over his shoulder, as though to fling it at me. "'Just stay where you are a moment, Morgan,' I said pleasantly, and dropped to a sitting position on the wall for greater ease in talking to him. He stood sullenly, the hammer dangling at arm's length, while my revolver covered his head. Now, if you please, I'd like to know what you mean by prowling about here and rummaging my house. Oh, it's you, is it, Mr. Glenarm? Well, you certainly gave me a bad scare. His air was one of relief, and his teeth showed pleasantly through his beard. It certainly is I, but you haven't answered my question. 
What were you doing in my house today?' He smiled again, shaking his head. "'You're really fooling, Mr. Glenarm. I wasn't in your house today. I never was in it in my life.' His white teeth gleamed in his light beard. His hat was pushed back from his forehead so that I saw his eyes, and he wore unmistakably the air of a man whose conscience is perfectly clear. I was confident that he lied, but without appealing to Bates, I was not prepared to prove it. "'But you can't deny that you're on my grounds now, can you?' I dropped the revolver to my knee, but I raised it again. "'Certainly not, Mr. Glenarm, if you'll allow me to explain. That's precisely what I want you to do.' "'Well, it may seem strange.' He laughed, and I felt the least bit foolish to be pointing a pistol at the head of a fellow of so amiable a spirit. "'Hurry,' I commanded. "'Well, as I was saying, it may seem strange, but I was just examining the wall to determine the character of the work. One of the cottagers on the lake left me with the job of building a fence on his place, and I've been expecting to come over to look at this all fall. You see, Mr. Glenarm, your honoured grandfather was a master in such matters, as you may know and I didn't see any harm in getting the benefit, to put it so, of his experience. I laughed. He had denied having entered the house with so much assurance that I had been prepared for some really plausible explanation of his interest in the wall. Morgan, you said it was Morgan, didn't you? You're undoubtedly a scoundrel of the first water. I make the remark with pleasure. Men have been killed for saying less, he said and for doing less than firing through windows at a man's head. It wasn't friendly of you. I don't see why you center all your suspicions on me. You exaggerate my importance, Mr. Glenarm. I'm only the man of all work at a summer resort. I wouldn't believe you, Morgan, if you swore on a stack of Bibles as high as this wall. Thanks, he ejaculated mockingly. Like a flash, he swung the hammer over his head and drove it at me, and at the same moment I fired— the hammer had struck the pillar near the outer edge, and in such a manner that the handle flew around and smote me smartly in the face. By the time I reached the ground, the man was already running rapidly through the park, darting in and out among the trees, and I made after him at hot speed. The hammer handle had struck me slantingly across my forehead, and my head ached from the blow. I abused myself roundly for managing the encounter so stupidly, and in my rage fired twice with no aim whatever after the flying figure of the caretaker. He clearly had the advantage of familiarity with the wood, striking off boldly into the heart of it, and quickly widening the distance between us. But I kept on, even after I ceased to hear him threshing through the undergrowth, and came out presently at the margin of the lake, about fifty feet from the boathouse. I waited in the shadow for some time, expecting to see the fellow again, but he did not appear. I found the wall with difficulty, and followed it back to the gate. It would be just as well, I thought, to possess myself of the hammer, and I dropped down on the St. Agatha side of the wall, and groped about among the leaves until I found it. Then I walked home, went into the library alight with its many candles, just as I had left it, and sat down before the fire to meditate. I had been absent from the house only forty-five minutes. End of chapter 7